0: Welcome to the Photoethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I've been talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today is our 12th and final episode in season one of the podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking with David Degner on the choices we make. David Degner is a photojournalist who has mainly been based in Egypt since 2010. Before that, he freelanced in Florida, interned at the St. Petersburg Times, and studied photojournalism and philosophy at Western Kentucky University. His greatest achievement to date is editing and mentoring photographers for Panorama, a platform showcasing the best photojournalistic work from Egypt. So could we start by you just telling us a little bit about your work?
1: I got into photojournalism because I, like, 9/11 happened while I was in high school, and we went to war in Iraq um, soon afterwards. And I could see how like ignorant I was of um, the Middle East and Iraq and uh, Islam, and also how ignorant like the rest of America was also at that point. Um, and saw like photojournalism and as a way of kind of educating myself and um, an excuse to to go learn. So I, since the beginning, I kind of knew that I wanted to go be a photographer based in the Middle East. I was also quite um, shy back when I was in high school and such, and I would set like goals of myself to go be able to talk to that person and get a photograph of that person and this like having the camera became a way to force myself to like interact with people basically and it continues kind of in that way that like with my camera I if I see something interesting I just go say hey I'm a photographer and people will let me into their lives or whatever they're creating and you can see that in like the types of photo stories that I work on a lot of my personal projects are just things that I find interesting and go ask for more. And then eventually I start taking photos. And uh, so that's where a lot of my more personal work comes from. But a lot of my photography is assignments. When I was in Egypt for the last 10 years, I would get emails to go make a portrait of someone. Usually a writer had been working on a story for weeks or months. And then I'm kind of the last person to get called that, hey, we need a portrait of this person. Uh, You have an hour, go make a portrait. So there's Yeah, a wide variety of like the type of work that I do with my photography.
0: Absolutely, so some sort of longer term and some more quick turnaround projects, I guess, that you're you're brought into. I'd like to talk a little bit about your experience of studying photojournalism formally, because that's sort of been a theme that has come up a fair bit in the um, interviews that I've done about sort of maybe a kind of imposter syndrome that a lot of people who have not done formal training have. And sort of, I was wondering, I guess, if you could talk a little bit about what you gained from doing that photojournalism course and how that shaped your approach um, in a way that that maybe you wouldn't have a certain set of tools had you not done that course.
1: Yes, yeah, studying photojournalism at Western Kentucky University was like a four-year um, bachelor's degree in photojournalism. Um, and it was useful in that it um, really that the biggest use that most of these programs have is that they help you make connections and they help you eventually get your foot in the door to uh, get that internship that eventually like, gets you in touch with editors, that gets you jobs. My university was very focused on like newspaper photojournalism, like working as daily staff at a newspaper and was kind of designed to teach you how to go make photos with a relatively quick turnaround time and by like, knowing your community. And some of the things that it was focused on like, are no longer relevant. Um, daily newspaper jobs don't exist so much anymore. So some of it's like the style that Western Kentucky University like, tried to inculcate in its students was at times uh, conservative and, like, uh, limiting in a way. Uh, When I look at other photographers that studied at, like, um, more artistic schools, they're able to talk about their photography more and able to, like, approach photography as a different type of tool than, like, I originally learned. And now I'm just having to continue to, like, try new things. But... It was definitely useful to give a structure to like every week, go out and make a photo story every week. Usually the photojournalism classes at Western, you would have every week you would get a theme or an assignment and have to go find a person, shoot a story, get the photos ready and present them in class the next week. And doing that like every week for four years just took out a lot of the fear that you were doing it wrong and allowed me to make a lot of the mistakes over that period of time that I probably would have been making at a, had I been working at a newspaper, or if I'd been doing that on my own, it would have taken much longer to go through and make all those mistakes and get the feedback. And I think that's probably the, the best part about going through a formal education is that it gives you a structure to go out and quickly make the mistakes and Quickly get the feedback to fix them. While if you're trying to do that on your own, it takes so much more like time and energy to pull together a story, and then a lot more energy to like find someone that'll give you feedback and say, "This is good. This is uh, weak." Or what's nice in a classroom is the community of feedback, where you see like we all went out with the same theme, and we have ten different responses to that theme I could have done any of those why did I choose mine and why did they choose theirs and yeah.
0: in that course did they did they talk much about ethics was that a big theme or a big focus of the course or not so much
1: um yeah throughout my time at uh, WKU journalistic ethics was a major part like there were um, classes specifically devoted to ethics and then a few professors would Spend a lot of the time in class, like talking about how to how to approach people in this often in times of like uh, hardship, whether a tragedy just happened to them or, yeah, they would put a decent amount of time into talking about ethics.
0: That's that's great. And and when you sort of went out and started working as a photojournalist, how did you? navigate some of those uh, ethical dilemmas that might've come up or what ethical dilemmas did come up and how did you sort of manage that on the hoof?
1: I remember being surprised. Like when I was in, in school, we had certain like very strict journalistic ethics working in a newspaper similar, like not leading on uh, people that you're photographing, not like um, asking them to do things, to reenact things, not moving things around in a scene and um, unless it's a portrait and then like I get to Egypt and I'm surrounded by a bunch of European photographers and they have often a different set of ethics about like how to both manipulate the scene that they're photographing, but also uh, often how to like over dramaticize or dramaticize the events that are happening through like through their like aesthetic choices of what they're photographing another photographer beside me said like yeah he was shooting someone i think it was in somalia he was taking pictures of a family in somalia who had buried a child but he wanted a photo of them burying the child so he asked them to dig up the child again and rebury the child I'm like there's so many levels of wrong to that that it just kind of blew my mind that someone would do that but you can find that level of like some some might call it devotion to like making the best image some might call it like excess ambition to the level of like destructiveness, but you'll run into that out in the out in the world
0: do you how do you i guess manage your own ethical integrity in a context in which ethical integrity is not always upheld to the same standard I guess what i'm what I'm trying to get at is I feel like sometimes ethics is viewed quite negatively as something that limits photographers. And of course it does, I'm sure, put many different types of limits on the type of work that you do. Can you talk maybe a little bit about that and how you negotiate that or how you view that kind of, um, criticism of, of an ethical approach?
1: I actually don't think that like my ethics have ever, um, like, held me back in getting a photo that I really want to get. I'm sure that if I had, like, a better imagination, I might come up with, like, some amazing photo that I want to get and I want to, like, somehow direct people to be in the right place at the right time to get it. But um, for most of my work, like, having my own moral guide for how I want to treat other people and layering on top of that my journalistic ethics gives me a clear structure for like how I talk with and interact with other people. And so they can trust me. And so much of the most meaningful stories require that trust. Like we can all um, tell when someone's kind of skeevy or trying to like manipulate us or trying to get something out of us, even if It's just a subconscious, like, feeling in a situation. And when we as, like, journalists approach someone that we don't have a relationship with, it's important to, like, be upfront about who we are, what we're, why we're there, and try to help them understand that, like, my goal is to accurately represent this situation. You might be afraid of that if you're, like, doing something bad, but... If you want to get your story out or you're the victim here or you want, like, people to know what's happening, then I will do my best to, like, accurately represent what's happening. Do you want to, like, collaborate with me on that and let me in? Uh, Having those journalistic ethics to, like, accurately represent the situation is the key to having people open up sometimes.
0: Yeah. And that really, I guess, reminds me of what you said earlier about how you used the camera initially as a way of interacting with people more or engaging with people more. And I guess that isn't always the case and how maybe people approach photography, because you can take pictures of people without ever having to interact with them. You know, but I think that the way that you're describing this uh, makes a lot of sense in terms of what you're saying about your practice and and how that facilitates Different kind of relationship, I guess, where the camera isn't really a barrier between you and the people that you're photographing, but instead a a doorway, you know, a point of entry into into that relationship, which I think is really, really important and really comes through when you talk about your practice.
1: I just, the the thing that stands out in my head is how when I was younger, um, yeah, I would look at like a lot of the photo books by Magnum photographers or many of the main photographers, and they'd be doing like street photography. Or photography where they're trying to be a fly on the wall in a public space most of the time. And I kind of thought that that was the way to make good photographs, but eventually I found out, no, the, the best way is to like be inside someone's space, inside where you're no longer a fly on the wall, you're just kind of like accepted and there. And then you can see much more interesting things.
0: And how did you sort of come to that realization yourself? Because I guess um, other people have said this as well when I've when I've been speaking with them that, you know, there's a tendency to maybe start out by emulating what we see and what's, um, you know, acclaimed photographers have have created. And then over time, realizing that actually maybe that's not all it's cracked up to be. So how did you, yeah, I guess, sort of uh, shift your thinking or what what caused you to shift your thinking on that?
1: That was kind of a slow process, but there were times when i I did a few workshops um, I did uh, especially two workshops called the uh, like American Diversity Project Workshops, which were just um, kind of put together by other students at uh, wkU and my like theme or assignment for uh, those workshops was to like tell the story of a neighborhood and when you start with um, in Sonora, Texas, tell the story of a neighborhood in Sonora, Texas. And when I walked around in that neighborhood, I saw the houses, and every once in a while, a car would pass by. But it wasn't like a neighborhood that was full of life out on the street in the middle of the day. So I knew like there are people here that do have interesting stories, and it just like required me to talk with them and, um, get into their lives more. I couldn't do this story just by walking around a residential street. That took a lot more work. Like I remember literally, like after the third day, people would open up and I could photograph some, but I wasn't really getting, there was a lot of rejection along the way to where like, at one point I was just lying in the front yard of someone's lawn, kind of uh, completely gutted of energy. but. Eventually, I, I made some work that I was really proud of there. I also could see that difference between stories where people let me into their lives, their daily lives, and uh, where I'm just out on the street. When I was, um, I went to China for like nine months, and up in was in Xinjiang, up in uh, the Uyghur portion of the northwestern China. Even though I learned some of the language and was able to communicate. I like wasn't able to get many people to open up to me. And so like after nine months of photographing there, I had pretty street photos, but not much more. And that's probably why like when I went to Egypt later and really based in Egypt, like, I spent so much time just learning the language for the first uh, few years. By learning Arabic and learning the culture, I was able to tell much more interesting stories
0: I guess along those lines of sort of, um, you know, things that maybe you learned along the way, is there anything else that you really wished that you had known when you first started?
1: Kind of as a a counterpoint to um, all the advantages to going to a photo school or taking, like studying photography. I wish I had spent more time studying other things and really came to photography with a more unique uh, perspective or like background information because so much of making interesting photography depends on having an interesting perspective yourself or a unique perspective yourself. Often I find my perspective to be kind of uh, boring or by taking assignments. I know what editors want and I often consciously or subconsciously try to make the photos they want instead of the photos that I want. And that has, I think like muddled my photography or made it kind of blasé sometimes. So it's it's quite important to keep your own perspective, keep your own like building your own knowledge by reading, mainly reading and hanging out with people that are um, interesting and different than you.
0: That's really interesting because I think it connects so directly to some of the problems that we see in the photo industry where a certain perspective or a certain way of telling a story is what's desired, you know, what's revered. And it has that sort of top-down stifling effect, doesn't it? That if, if that's the work that's that's commissioned, that's the work that gets produced and it becomes a bit of a cycle, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it's, um, luckily I do feel like that is changing. Um, I do feel like, I mean, I re- I remember, when I was uh, like starting between like 2000 and 2010, there was definitely a certain style of photography and stories that were like the acceptable storylines to be told and the acceptable um, styles to be shot. Now that is changing. I mean, I say that's changing, but still in Egypt, like half of my photos, half of my assignments would be not half, I'm exaggerating, but many of my assignments would be based around like something pharaonic is being dug up. Even though the government, like the Egyptian government does that whenever they want to distract from bad news, they'll find a new mummy that they found like two seasons ago and try to get the um, international press to cover that. Or like in a large part of the world, like you look at... um Tanya Habjuk had the same problem working in Palestine, where a lot of the stories were like the same kind of formulaic stories coming out of Palestine. That's why she did the Occupied Pleasures book of like showing the fun people have there, because that stories of fun and uh, relaxation were pretty rare out of Palestine. You look at uh, Kyrgyzstan. I feel like most of the stories come out of Kyrgyzstan are about kidnapping brides, which is a terrible thing. But... There are more stories in Kyrgyzstan than like bride kidnappings. I have never like quite found where the hangup is if it's like editors or it's readers or photographers being trained. But, like we often are stuck in these same cycles of stories.
0: Yeah, when you were talking there about um, your experience in Egypt of maybe a bit of a distraction technique being employed mm-hmm. to here look at the mummies, don't look at this other thing that's happening. It reminded me of something that you said. Um, obviously, you're an expert contributor in our online training in photojournalism ethics. And I remember in that series, um, in one of your videos, you're talking about how sometimes, you know, you are uh, hired to go and photograph things that are set up. And I guess I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you navigate the ethics of something that, when you're in that situation, you know that it's set up. But when people are looking at their photographs, they might not know that. And maybe how you try to mitigate the potential harm, or if there is any way even, to mitigate the potential harm of sort of buying into and and replicating a story that might be inauthentic.
1: I don't have any like easy answer to that. So much of news photography these days are events that are created to be photographed, whether it's a protest or whether it's a politician like standing in front of a, uh, a barn to show how they're a friend of the people. There's a, uh, an urge within me to like always include all the other cameras that are around in the photo, but you can't do that for like every photo that gets published. So it's partially like incumbent on the readers to be active like in thinking about what these events are, even if the photos don't show um, all the pulleys and gears happening in the background.
0: I've thought quite a lot about viewer responsibility. And I guess I, I do wonder, you know, where does some of the responsibility lie in, in situations like that, for example, you know, is it with the photographer? Is it with the photo editor? Or is it with the people who are consuming and viewing the images and how, how do we, understand yeah where that responsibility lies and how do how do people take better care um as consumers of images and and as producers of images and and how do we navigate yeah complicated questions like that
1: yeah even back in college we all saw when iraq was um, invaded and the u.s soldiers went to pull down the uh the statue of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad, one of the big statues. It was like a beautiful symbolic way of showing that Saddam uh, had fallen from power. But when listening to the uh, photographers who were there, it sounded like it was set up for them. And it was definitely not like an organic thing that uh, Iraqis were doing of their own volition. And the soldiers that were there were Maybe not as aware at first of how it was looking, because like they at first draped an American flag over um, hussein 's face, and then that looked bad, so they took the flag off and just pulled the statue down. This photo was like splashed across the front pages of u s the next day, but like, reality was far more complex. it was a very symbolic image that vastly oversimplified the um reality on the ground
0: yeah it sounds like in a situation like that yeah it it is really complicated isn't it to think about well who whose responsibility is it to know or to to communicate that that the reality was so much more complicated i guess it's in terms of how the photograph is used but at the same time you know i guess that gets very messy because everything is a performance in one way or another it's, it's a it's a very fine line isn't
1: it kind of in a similar vein when the revolution in. Egypt happened and protests in Tahrir Square eventually led to the downfall of Mubarak. When Mubarak was um, like the night that he announced that he was leaving, I was in Alexandria and I was shooting for the Wall Street Journal. And so I go out in the streets and I'm photographing um, people celebrating. I get a whole wide variety of photos, even though I have to work pretty fast because the deadline is like eight o'clock and everything happened at like six o'clock. So I have Basically, an hour to shoot in the sh- celebrations in the street, get back to the hotel, and upload. I remember I took like two s- photos that I really liked. One was of a um, a family, relatively religious-looking family. The mother's wearing a niqab. The father's got a long beard. Got like four children, um, and they're all just like belting out uh, the national anthem. They're like just super uh, celebrating and happy for this moment. Then I get another photo of a young woman uh, without any head covering, just a younger woman, probably uh, 17 or so, standing out of the sunroof of her car, holding an Egyptian flag as it's driving along the Corniche in Alexandria. To me, both photos were good. Both photos were like strong representations of how people were very uh, happy in the moment. But I kind of knew that the um, the photo of the beautiful young woman would probably get published more than the photo of the like family. The reality is like most of Egypt is more like this family, but the beautiful young woman is like more palatable to the American photo aesthetics. So yeah, next morning, the the photo of the young woman like standing up with the Egyptian flag was published on the front page and the other one was like lost to history. And i just like had a momentary talk with the editors and like there was there apparently had been a lot of discussion that night uh, between the photo editors of like some of them are fighting for one photo and some are fighting for the other photo. So that it wasn't nearly as uh, clear cut bias in the newsroom as it might appear. But
0: I guess that's hard, though, as well, when when they're also not the ones who are who are there and they're also maybe not the ones who are well you'd hope that they are fully aware of maybe the demographics of of Egypt and and sort of wh- what the what the sentiment is if they're the ones reporting on it but at the same time you know visually they might not be quite as aware of of what's more visually representative of Egypt as as maybe you are being on the ground
1: yeah sometimes i send like suggestions to photo editors of what i feel would be the most appropriate photos to publish, um, like in that situation. But often I don't have to trust that they know what's going on.
0: And at the minute, you're in America at the minute, correct?
1: Uh, yep. Yeah, i in yeah. Boston. Been out photographing the protests for our Black Lives Matter protests. What I want to do is like get back to that walking around neighborhoods that I was talking about earlier, like getting inside people's lives um, but more, but we have such massive, like, in-your-face stories happening right now that the subtler stories are still overlooked by me right at this moment, but I'd like to get back to them.
0: Yeah, I can I can understand that, and um, how's that experience been for you of photographing the, the Black Lives Matter protests and things, and do you maybe want to or, or not want to weigh in on the the sort of uh, conversation that was happening about about faces and and how uh, you know we protect the people the people in our photographs
1: I feel really comfortable in protests like it's uh something that I have like a lot of experience in so it's yeah I feel comfortable moving around in them the the discussion of like faces and protests is an important one i don't know I might have a I might have a like built-in bias, but I feel that like photographing journalists should photograph protests in the U.S. as they like normally have and not worry about including people's faces in them, in photos that are published. There is some danger from the security services in the U.S. and from like anti-protesters, but I think that they are manageable. I think those dangers are like manageable. But exactly like exactly one year ago, I was in Sudan photographing uh, protests in Sudan as they uh, overthrew uh, the former president. There was a period of time between the end of July and um, June 30th when there was a lot of fear in the streets. People were being disappeared. People were just ending up dead in the ravines in Omdurman. Internet was cut, phone lines were monitored, and people were still trying to organize protests for an eventual June 30th protest by having like neighborhood gatherings basically. And so I was going to these neighborhood gatherings of like a few hundred people gather in an open area and talk and like rally the troops basically. Um, and when I was photographing these, like I was very aware not to show people's faces, not to show identifying uh, materials because there was a significant chance that if leaders were identified, that they would be disappeared, they would be killed. So I'm, maybe it's uh, a bias that I have that, like, the dangers for U.S. protesters are manageable. But I've made decisions both ways. And I guess the the way I made that decision is just by trying to be aware and, like, very conscious of what um, the dangers are for everyone involved. I definitely don't want... Um, Want anyone to be hurt from my photos. And actually later, when I I spent some more time with some uh, youth organizers for a Black Lives Matter protest here. And they didn't ask me to blur any faces. They didn't um, put any like demands upon me. Instead, they just covered their faces. Everyone wore masks, everyone like some people covered their hair, they concealed their own identity because they felt it was important. And that's probably the best way to do it. If someone feels that their identity can get them in trouble or like showing their identity can put them in danger, maybe they should conceal their identity. It's not like photojournalists are the only people walking around with cameras these days.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point, I guess, that photojournalism, ethics and photojournalists Adhering to those ethics isn't necessarily um, protection enough due to the democratization of photography and due to the fact that everybody has a camera. So that is a that is an interesting point um, about that. And I guess as well, in terms of sort of mitigating the risks of uh, harm coming to people in photographs, I guess that also sort of goes back to to approaching people um, like you were talking about, I guess, at the start. Um, which of course is, you know, you can't approach everybody at a protest, but I guess making yeah. making use of that sort of uh, more hands-on and more communicative way of photographing, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's often a, a moment, even when like in a fast-moving protest, you don't have time, especially with masks on and everyone's kind of separated because it's hard to communicate. But you have that moment where like you're lifting the camera up and like make eye contact and usually someone will nod or they'll like make eye contact and then continue with what they're doing. And you can, I take that as like accepting my presence there and my like, Even if we aren't like talking, we have so much more happening around us.
0: Something that I want to ask everybody who comes on the podcast is how um, do you define photography ethics or what does it mean to you to be an ethical photographer?
1: My photo ethics go back more to journalistic ethics, being an ethical journalist trying to uh, accurately portray what's happening. Really, I I guess I don't actively think about the ethics of ethics in my photography, like every day that I go out and photograph. Now it's just a constant background method of working. I definitely used to think about it a lot more, but now it's just like my journalistic ethics are, are like enmeshed in the way that I work. And but it's an important part of what allows me to like, approach people and try to like fairly and accurately tell their stories.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photoethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode number 12 are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. This is the final episode in season one of the photoethics podcast. You can stay connected with us by enrolling in our online courses on photojournalism ethics at www.photoethics.thinkific.com or by following us on social media. We're on Twitter at Photoethics and on Instagram at Photoethics Center. Thank you very much for joining me throughout season one and stay tuned for the release of season two.